Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on my new home at New Dissident Radio. My guests today are Peggy Sutton of To Your Health Sprouted Flower and Jay Coyle of Einkorn.com. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. History was made in Vermont last week as their House of Representatives passed a GMO labeling bill, making it the furthest any legislation for this has gotten to in the United States. The next steps are for the Senate to approve the bill, and then finally the governor. This would then make Vermont the first state in the U.S. to have mandatory GMO labeling. Let's hope the Senate and the governor make the right decision. This could be a big victory for the real food community. Next, Drake's Bay Oyster Company, a family oyster farm along the Pacific Ocean just north of San Francisco, is currently in the 9th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals fighting to keep the farm open. Last November, then-U.S. Secretary of Interior Ken Salazar decided not to renew Drake Bay's lease. Some environmentalists argue that this could allow other commercial businesses to run on federal parklands. But to me, this sounds more like an opposition to people eating oysters. This farm has been around for over 50 years. And what's more sustainable than providing local oysters from fresh waters? Also, the UN is telling people to eat more insects for their source of animal protein. This, of course, is part of the UN claiming that meat production is destroying our planet. But any listener to this show should know that's a gross misunderstanding of things. While factory farm meat is bad for the environment, grazing animals replenish our grassland. Insects can't do that. In other government-related news, the FDA released software program earlier this week that's designed to help owners and operators of food facilities, including production, transportation, and retail, with customized plans to minimize the risk of contamination. I'm all for anything to help reduce contamination in our food, but I also think a great way to avoid it is to opt for local handcrafted food over products that are heavily processed in large factories. And finally, it was revealed that butter had been quietly removed from New York City schools in 2008. Several school kitchen managers have requested butter only to get a response from Chancellor Dennis Walcott saying this is to fight obesity and people shouldn't be ordering butter. I'm with the kitchen managers. Butter doesn't make people fat. In fact, studies have shown that children have been able to get more nutrients from their vegetables by putting butter on them. Chancellor Walcott is also the one that has the first school with an all-vegan lunch menu. Chancellor Walcott, I appreciate your effort to make our youth healthier, but you're going about it all wrong. And now, for the main course, which today is einkorn wheat. Einkorn is the earliest form of wheat that humans have eaten, going back over 10,000 years ago. It differs greatly from modern forms of wheat and even from other alternative grains such as spelt or kamut. Einkorn has a low gluten content, making it very easy to digest and absorb the nutrients. I know many people that have said they feel more nourished having einkorn over any other types of grains. Here to talk with me about einkorn wheat, our first Peggy Sutton, of course, of 
to your health sprouted flower, which has just released einkorn wheat in the flower. And then Jade Coyle, which is the president of einkorn.com and Ancient Grains LLC that provide the einkorn to your health. Peggy, welcome back to the program. It's great to be here. And it's always a pleasure to have you. And I was actually fortunate to have some of your einkorn flower a little bit pre-release uh, thanks to Elena Luther of Culture Club and one of her customers. They had baked some delicious sourdough bread with the einkorn and brought it to a monthly Pasadena chapter meeting for the Weston A. Price chapter. And I, I loved it because, I mean, I love sourdough bread and I just, I love the texture of the einkorn. I mean, it has kind of a, a lighter color than some of like these other alternative grains. So it has it this really nice light does. color to it. A very light texture too. A more like a, um, a fluffy pastry flour. Even, you know, even as just good old 100% whole grain um, stone milled einkorn flour. It's so fluffy. It is. I completely agree. And now with you this time, you've brought Jade Coyle. And Jade, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. It's great to be here with you and Peggy. It is. And I mean, it's very admirable what you do. So now you're the one that provides the einkorn wheat to, to your health. How did you first discover and get involved with einkorn flour? I think like a lot of people, you're you're wondering, you know, what what is going on in in um, America today with our health as it relates to wheat? There's so many people that are being diagnosed with maybe not celiac disease, but some form of a gluten sensitivity. And in my family, there yeah. people have sensitivities to wheat. Uh, you know, they'll get really tired afterward, or um, just feel achy. Um, and and you know when when you look at that and you wonder well you know the Bible says that wheat is for man and and then you wonder well, what's going on with all of these health problems there's something that's driving there and a lot of people are asking that question and that was a question we were asking originally and a good friend of mine Stan Ness we're talking and he he came across it in some research he has a strong research background and and was looking into it heavily, and, and the two of us started talking about it and, and looking some more and realized that finding einkorn was very difficult, and and it was not available, and so we started looking for it, and it was just, just for our families. And we came across during that search, the einkorn.com, the domain name, and, and decided to acquire it and begin blogging, and we weren't even offering it. You know, we were just talking about it, and we were just flooded with so many questions that, first of all, we weren't prepared to answer, and this was in 2009. And so the two of us just started answering those questions and working together to learn more about it, and and uh, met a farmer in Germany, and and uh, Renee Featherstone, uh, who is an icon in the ancient grainings industry, and, and we, we talked with some of these people that really uh, helped us to understand uh, the history of einkorn and and how to, how to get it today. And, and that was really what led us to getting started with it. It was quite a journey. And that's a good point that you bring up about the early forms of grain and how it's different than what we have today. And 
it certainly does go back at least 10,000 years. I know Sally Fallon had talked recently about how she believes that actually in the Paleolithic times, they did have grain and they did have dairy. So Jade and Peggy, I was interested in both of your opinions on that. Well, you know, the, the, historically speaking, the, the best concrete evidence we have is with Otzi the Iceman, who was dated, dated back to 3300 B.C., and he was so well-preserved because he was in a glacier, and, you know, on, on his cuffs and his coat, uh, actually, I think it's, let me see if I can find the specifics, but on, on him, they found einkorn, uh, on, our, on our website, we have this video that uh, came from YouTube that it talks, it actually shows the little pieces of einkorn they found on him and, and inside of his uh, digestive system as well. And, you know, it had the hole on it and everything. So it was uh, obviously einkorn, and, and they obviously studied on it and verified it. But that's the very concrete evidence that we have going back to at least then. And then there are other studies that take it back to the full crescent of the originating uh, location of, of einkorn, where it went from the wild form to the domesticated form that's available today. And, and it's the oldest form of cultivated wheat available today. And Peggy, what are your thoughts on this? Um, well, I, you know, I believe that these ancient grains or heirloom grains that um, I'm so thankful that we still have them in in their original state because, you know, I'm sure everyone or everyone who's trying to uh, eat a better diet. Um, is aware of common wheat and how many, you know, years, I guess, at least going back to maybe 1800, um, when they started really hybridizing the wheat. And then with the poor soil conditions, um, they've just uh, continued to have to hybridize to grow common wheat in today's um, soil environment. And it's not the same wheat that, um, you know, that 3,000 B.C. Uh, people ate. It's not, of course, it's not the same wheat that our great-great-grandmothers had. Um, mm. So it's just dramatic, uh, in mm. my opinion, how common wheat's changed. And it's, it's so wonderful, though, to have these heirloom or, or still original state um, wheat, you know, einkorn being a very uh, wonderful one, um, along with um, spelt and kamut, um, to be able to have these and enjoy grains and everything that you can do with them and not have to worry about, um, you know, their genetic makeup, so to speak. That's a good point that you bring up about the heirloom grains. I think there is very much a difference between heirloom grains and alternative grains that are also referred to compared to the modern wheat we have with the hybridization that as the appropriate omnivore is about going back to traditions, wheat is in fact a traditional food, but the way that it's modern wheat is, it's been hybridized as well as also the way that they refine it into white flour makes it very different from what our ancestors ate. So certainly if you eat the alternative grains and einkorn being the very earliest one of them, 
I think you get some more nutritional benefits. What do you see as the nutritional benefits that einkorn has over any of the other flowers? I have been baking with the einkorn uh, um, because I, I have to be prepared for our customers when we release the sprouted einkorn. And it just sprouts beautifully. And I have to say this, um, uh, I, I had to um, send a sample to our independent lab to have it tested so I could have a nutritional panel for, for a packaging label. And I had them run a gluten test. And, of course, um, it came back, you know, clear of gluten. And I was a little puzzled because I, I was like, well, I know einkorn has gluten because I've baked bread using yeast. And then um, I saw in, I believe it's on your your website, Jade, um, that the gluten in einkorn will never fail the Elise test. And yeah. so that was the that was the mystery solved, and I thought it was I thought it was great. I mean, you know, it, I'm sure einkorn is a, a lower gluten um, grain, but it it came up no gluten on the Elisa test, uh, and then it does have gluten. So that I I just thought, found that really interesting because it doesn't measure. But it has the gluten in there, um, mm. so that's kind of neat. And you know, you would never, you would never find that kind of unique gluten in any common grains. Yeah, that's that is a really good point, Peggy, and and one of the most important things for people to understand. And you touched on the heirloom grains or um, the ancient grains, which the most common ancient grains are einkorn, emmer, spelt, and kamut. And there's something important to know about them genetically that you were referring to, to there, Peggy, which is that most plants that we eat are either a haploid or a diploid species. Einkorn is the only cultivated grain we eat today that is a diploid species, meaning it has two chromosomes. Uh, emmer is a tetraploid and spelt the hexaploid and common bread wheat that we eat today is also a hexaploid. And that means that they contain additional genomes, which uh, would be in, in spelled as the D genome, and in, in common wheat today is the D genome. The ELISA test, uh, I work closely with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Matt McLean, who uh, he runs naturalleavening.com, which teaches people about uh, some of these things. But the, the principle that he teaches is, um, about using, you know, the, the the same thing that Peggy is teaching, which is if if you properly prepare your grains, it'll allow your body to digest them better. And in his research for that, he was trying to do ELISA tests on all these different grains, and he found out that einkorn does not even trigger on the ELISA test, and it's because it doesn't even contain the D genome, which the ELISA test is based on. And so it was kind of a shock for him, and he shared that with me, and and uh, like Peggy said, we shared that with our audience. It is a very important scientific fact uh, related to einkorn that uh, most people, you know, when they look at it, there's a lot of things that are attracted to it, but there's actually a scientific and genetic reason for einkorn to be so different than the other grains, and, and why that gluten is different. We have 
uh, it, it truly has a different type of gluten. It has gluten, but it's a totally different type of gluten. And you can tell that once, like you is it has a different texture and, and, and uh, flavor, and there, there is something different about it because it's simpler genetically speaking. Um, it's uh, less uh, advanced uh, plant. And, and I think that that must translate to some form to being easier for the body to digest. And that's, I think, one of the, the, the most important ones that you hit on there, Peggy, that I've heard from people that really uh, is of interest about Einkorn. And there's a number of others. But I, I just wanted to make sure that I hit on that while you were talking about it, Peggy. But I'll let you keep going. Sorry. No, I think that's, I, you know, I think that's great. Um, I, and I just found that to be fascinating. So I wanted to make sure that we got that in today's chat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I want to get that in today's chat, too, because I had read about that also. Now, Jade, explain to the listeners exactly what an ELISA test is. So I'm not an expert on it, I will say that. But okay. uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. McClain was performing these tests, and, and, and he shared this with me. But an ELISA test is used in labs to determine the, – the, the basic idea behind it is it, it will determine if the uh, gluten product is too high to be considered gluten-free. So uh, there will be different tests performed on samples in, in labs and in, in, uh, uh, processing facilities for food, and, and they'll use the LISA test for that is my understanding. And there may be others as well, but this is one of the more common ones. Yeah, we, yeah we use the ELISA testing also for our um, gluten-free grains and oh. flour. Yeah, it, it's some sort of a standard in, 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 uh, in being able to say, put that, that label on there. Is that right, Peggy, to put a, a gluten-free um, label yeah. on? Yes, the, the, um, the registered or the recognized um, measurement of gluten to be called non-gluten or gluten-free is actually 200 parts per million, but the industry standard for that has, you know, taken on a life of itself because there are so many people um, who have gluten sensitivities today. Um, measure by the ELISA test, which can measure as low as 10 parts per million. And they wow. may have even a more sensitive one, but the one that we use um, measures down to 10 parts per million gluten. So that's, I mean... That's that's very low. Um, so that way we can ensure that you know our gluten-free products are actually that because you know I I don't want a customer to get um, a gluten-free product and then have a reaction to it. So mm. we just test using you know using that method and it's very easy to use. Even um, you know a mom taking the kids out to eat. Or, or for anyone who might be gluten sensitive, it's it's almost easy. Well, it's easy enough to use in a restaurant if you just really needed to check. So certainly, einkorn has some type of gluten, although a different type. Have either of you had experiences knowing people that were gluten sensitive but could digest einkorn? Now, Jay well, we get answer that. Uh huh. Yeah, we we get a lot of customers, and and these are regular customers that continue to buy it. Um, I had a lady uh, who runs a bread shop 
uh, called Aussie's Bread, and I don't know how big it is or the extent of the business, but she called me one day and, and told me how excited that she was about Einkorn and, and that she was starting this, to, to sell this specific bread called Aussie's Bread and uh, because her son can now finally eat wheat um, since he's had Einkorn. I know that um, many people, including my, my partner Stan, who we were working closely together early on in the, in the days of the business, and, and his family was also able to the the thing is if depending on what's going on in your digestive system you may actually have damage and you may it may be best not to eat any wheat at all including einkorn and allow your body to heal there's you know that you definitely need to consult with a doctor on on those um, situations but we are getting customers coming to us and saying this is the only wheat I can eat and and they're very emphatic about it and excited about it obviously yeah, I think that's great. And now they can have sprouted einkorn flour. That's right. The first on the market ever. Right. Yeah, we're just so excited. As a matter of fact, we've had several customers call wanting to reserve <laughs> their bags of einkorn flour, sprouted einkorn flour. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, there are some other points I wanted to hit on about nutritional value of einkorn, Aaron. Sure. We talked about the toxicity of einkorn as it relates to its gluten. It has a totally different type of gluten, which you know ties back to the um, the two pair of chromosomes that are in it. And um, uh, so it's it's very intriguing that way. But there are other benefits as well. It has three to four times more beta carotene than modern wheat, and three to four times more leucine. You know, that uh, helps with preventing uh, macular degeneration and cataracts. That's four to five times more riboflavin than modern wheat. And that's obviously very important for energy and, and you know, preventing aging in your body. And um, einkorn is interesting. This isn't necessarily a health benefit, but because it's a diploid species, um, and this is something that Renee Featherstone shared with me, that, you know, I'm not a geneticist, so I don't. I've just tried to understand all these things the best I can, but Renee Featherstone is very credible in the industry and he read its research to him. And he says, Einkorn, it is very, very unlikely that it would ever cross over with another type of wheat because it is a completely different species. And that's why, um, you know, you do have to be careful with crossbreeding and Monsanto and these big corporations are very concerned about these types of things. And, and when it comes to einkorn, it, it stands by itself, genetically speaking and production-wise, production because it's a different species entirely and it doesn't cross over being, being a diploid species. And in addition, it's a whole wheat. And one of the most common questions we get from customers is, well, you know, if it's a whole wheat, how did they eat it, you know, long, long ago? They didn't have these de-holer machines. And as we can see by Aki, on, on him, he had whole einkorn. And so he was eating it in the hole. You know, today we removed that hole, but that, that hole provides some protection for the grain against disease and against bugs. And, and so that's really valuable uh, aspect of einkorn flour. And you're talking about how this is the first sprouted einkorn, which is sold by To Your Health. So Peggy, had you been getting a lot of requests for carrying einkorn? Because I know, in fact, when I had you on the show last, I had asked you about it. And I imagine probably... A number of other people within the Village Green Network and in the Weston A. Price community and just 
in the natural real foods community had learned about it and were calling in, writing in for requests. Yes, we, we were getting emails, phone calls. Um, everyone wanted sprouted einkorn. So um, I got in touch with uh, Jordan, um, who works with Jade, and um, to you know to procure some and. And um, I'm afraid that I probably didn't get enough um, from you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll be placing another order very quickly, I'm sure. Uh, and we, you know, we have finally um, sprouted a test batch, a beautiful, beautiful sprout. Um, and, of course, dried it and have milled some into flour and had all of the testing done. Oh, I imagine that you get a lot of requests, and I think if it sells out pretty fast, and that shows just how great of a flower it is, and certainly I think a big part in people learning about einkorn was Sarah Pope, the blogger of the Healthy Home Economist. She wrote a great article about how her family has been able to digest the einkorn better than any other type of alternative grain, including the spelt and emmer and kamut. Yeah, I think yeah, she she's wonderful, and and I just think because it has its original properties more than anything else, and it's just very unique, and we know it hasn't been tampered with by um, with by man, and and so of course it it would, in my opinion, be so much more digestible, and then of course, uh, especially if you soak it or sprout it. Um, and I've tried um, several breads, and I've made some biscuits, and they're just fabulous. And the taste and texture is, is wonderful. So I'm really excited for all of my customers to get their hands on some of this sprouted einkorn flour. Now, now what are the ways that they can get that from you, Peggy? Um, they can order it directly from our website, which is um, to your health sprouted flower dot com. Right. And you're talking about certainly the methods of things such as soaking and sprouting and fermenting, which are ways to even make the wheat more digestible. And one of the ones I had a question about was soaking, because I know some people say sprouted flour doesn't need to be soaked because what soaking does is it sprouts the flour. But I know. On your website, one of the recipes for the pancakes had recommended to soak it even though it is already sprouted because it gives more of a texture and richness to it. And I have to say, I like soaking my sprouted flour even though it is already because I think it actually does give an extra step to it. What are your thoughts on that? I I agree. Now, it's certainly not... um, required to soak sprouted flour because the sprouting process has taken care of, you know, eliminating the anti-nutrients and phytic acid. But um, the reason you would want to soak sprouted flour, the main two reasons that I can think of is because you like that little bit of uh, a twang, um, that sour taste that you know, soaked flour will give you, which I think is fabulous. The other thing is if you're naturally leavening um, 
say using baking soda or baking powder, um, the soaking will help the leavening process, and you'll get a better rise. And I would imagine that would be especially important for one like einkorn because I know that einkorn can sometimes have a little trouble getting it to rise compared to other flowers. Yeah, you know, I really, um, I haven't, I haven't experienced any um, rising issues with it. Um, the main difference with the einkorn, and of course, we'll be sure to post um, several uh, recipes on the website next week when we release the einkorn. Um, but um, it has a different absorption rate from, <clears throat> excuse me, from regular wheat or, or even spelt or kamut. Um, the bread recipe that I played with and you know perfected with the sprouted einkorn flour used all, well a little more than a quarter cup less water. Um, than the original recipe called for if you were using wheat or spelt. So I, I thought that was very interesting. I think so too. We'll talk more about what we can bake with einkorn flour, but first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free 877-401-68. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea States Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email karl at oleastates.com. And we're back. I'm talking with Peggy Sutton. She's the founder and president of To Your Health Sprouted Flour. They've just released an einkorn wheat and flour to their product lines. And also Jay Coyle, he's the president of einkorn.com and Ancient Grains LLC, and they're the ones that provide the great einkorn to companies like To Your Health. So we've been talking about baking with the einkorn flour now. Peggy, what do you think are some of the foods that can be best utilized by using the einkorn flour? Um, well, they certainly would be great for um, biscuits, anything naturally leavened. Um, 
you'll have a little bit more of a challenge if you're going to try to use a yeast, but like you've already sampled a, a, a wild um, yeast, the sourdough bread, it would be great. Um, I can't wait to try my cracker recipe using the sprouted einkorn because I, I, it just has a wonderful taste, and I, I think it's just going to be great for just about anything that you'd want to use it for. And because it, the texture so much resembles almost a pastry flour, it, it's just wonderful. And then for all these kids, that I get calls all the time. You know, mom's having a hard time transitioning her children to brown bread. And so the iron corn just bakes up so really neat and um, uh, almost a beautiful tan or more of a tan color than golden, and I think it's going to be really popular for moms who are having that transition issue with their children. I agree. I can't stress enough how it has the lighter color in it for people that don't like that darker bread that they're used to. I mean, this is one that it's not a bleached flour. This is just its natural coloring, so it has, like you said, the pastry-type texture to it, but... There's there's no refinement at all, and in fact, especially not with yours, because other einkorn flowers, thing to point out is, um, although in general einkorn is better flower, you have the one where it is fully sprouted. Yes. And, Jade, what are some of your favorite things to bake with the einkorn flour? We, our family uses pitas and tortillas a lot, and those, those have been my favorites. We, uh, we, we love it as bread, too, and, and cobblers and pancakes. Um, but we we use the pitas and, and tortillas a lot because they work well with the kids, and, and they uh, taste really good, and the kids just love them. And when it's in einkorn, it's li- like like they was saying, it's lighter, and it has, some people describe it as a nutty flavor. I'm not sure I'd call it nutty, but it, it has just a very rich flavor to it. And you can really tell that in, when you when you eat it that way. Um, there's there's a few recipes that have been really of interest to our readers, and one is einkorn pilaf, and we have that recipe on our website. But it um, it eating the whole berries in, in, in a salad type of a dish, um, great way to to eat it. A very popular way to eat einkorn as well. Pancakes sound good. Peggy, have you tried that with Sally Fallon's pancake recipe using the einkorn? I haven't tried the pancakes yet. I'm sure my husband Jeff is going to want those tomorrow morning, though. That'll be um, a great breakfast for tomorrow morning. Oh, yeah. I love that. I mean, that's one that you have on your website is the pancake recipe like I was talking about before, and that's one we should recommend the soaking. Because I want to bring that up again. I think soaking of the sprouted flour is good especially for the dessert recipes. It does give it more of that cakey texture to it. I think if you soak it in something like a kefir or a buttermilk. Right, right. And, you know, I find, too, with any of our sprouted flowers in making the pancakes, excuse me, if you'll, um, you know, you can make the batter and let it sit overnight, but at least to let it all come together. Um, for about an hour before you would make the pancakes. Um, And, of course, they have to be 
uh, cooked on a much lower heat than uh, you would, you know, processed um, pancake mi mixes. But they, you, you, they just don't compare. There's no comparison whatsoever to good sprouted pancakes. So I, I think the einkorn is going to be a winner for that recipe, too. Oh, I think so. It's a great recipe. That pancakes actually were one that I had made for my family when visiting them to try to introduce them to sprouted flour, and it had certainly won them over. Great. So that's wonderful. So certainly einkorn is another type of sprouted flour that can use with all these sprouted flour recipes. Is there some tweaking that you need to do with the recipes when using einkorn? Well, if you're just going to take your favorite recipes, um, as I, I mentioned earlier, I think the biggest challenge is probably going to be um, the amount of liquid that you would use. So my recommendation is if you're going to use the sprouted einkorn flour in, let's say, um, well, Sally Fallon's pancake recipe, I would start out by not putting all of the buttermilk or kassir or whatever liquid you're going to use. I would keep at least a quarter cup of the liquid out um, and then just add it one tablespoon at a time until you get the consistency that you're looking for in whatever recipe it is because that was the experience that I had um, uh, in trying to come up with a bread machine recipe using the sprouted einkorn. Um, I had to back off of the liquid by five tablespoons, but it, it baked beautifully. Nice. How about you, Jay? Do you find that you need to change recipes when you use einkorn? Some, when, when you bake using natural leavening and some of the non-traditional ways that Peggy's been talking about, I find that it actually rises really well, which is interesting. But the biggest challenge we've had from our readers is when they try to cook with um, yeast and, and uh, more of the traditional, you know, making wheat bread and that, they, they're having trouble with that. And, and so I think that pers personally we use natural leavening as well. So I, I don't have the answer to those people, unfortunately. But uh, the, there are some recipes out there. That, that have come out from uh, a few different uh, bloggers that have put out really nice recipes that are, are available for, for cooking with yeast. So that's probably the biggest challenge I've, I've heard, other than the water, and Peggy's absolutely right. It doesn't absorb water to the same degree that other types of wheat do. So you do need to adjust for that. Yeah. I'm also more a fan of cooking with natural leavening and using the wild yeast versus the baker's yeast. Absolutely. Yeah, and of course that's great with with sourdoughs. Um, and since you've tried some, you know you you know that there are a lot of successful sourdoughs that can be made with the einkorn. There are absolutely. I mean, it made probably one of the best sourdough bread I've ever had. I think it went really well because I know that actually <laughs> the friend that was making it, she's a little worried with how it came out, but I would say big hit. Right, and you know. I, we've I guess because we've had so many years of um pre sliced bread in a plastic wrapper <laughs> that so many people think that if bread doesn't look like that it's not gonna be good bread. And um, <laughs> you know, 
um, and they're just so worried about getting this. I need a good sandwich bread, and I'm like, well, this is a very good sandwich bread, and they're like, no, it's you know, it's not, it's not shaped like the bread that I get at the store. <laughs> so, um, you know, if if people would just be open to trying real bread. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the so-called baking issues would be um, non-issues at that point. And you just can't beat the taste. You can't. And, I mean, to me, I think it's a beautiful thing, actually, that each loaf of sourdough bread looks different. And I'm not a fan of overly processed foods. So the fact that it does look different is pretty much a testament to how it's not processed and it's done by hand and there's not a machine that carves it out to look the same. Well, and I think that when once you started to eat it, uh, whether whether you naturally like a, a sourdough bread or naturally leavened breads that you know aren't sourdough, whether whether you've been around it and you naturally like it, if after you eat it for a while, you notice that it is a lot better for your body and you feel a lot different. And um, especially kids. You know, trying to, that, that's the hardest thing in, in families with young kids, trying to help uh, introduce that and get them used to it. It, it can be a challenge. Um, but, you know, we've seen in our family that they definitely do get very used to it and they, they, they love it. And, you know, we go through a lot of bread at our house and, and it's, a, it's a big part of our diet. And if it wasn't, with, with, without natural leavening, it just would not be possible. To, to do that and, and uh, keep everybody as healthy as you do. You do, and it has a great feel to it where certainly you like eating the bread and you want to eat more, but not the same way as other bread where, like, you just can't stop eating it. Like, you're glad to eat it again, but you can kind of, you can say a level of K, like, I've had a nice yeah. amount, you know, need to keep reaching for the bread like a lot of these other breads do. It is satisfying, and, and there's something to that. You know, in Dr. Davis's book, Wheat Belly, he talks about the addiction of on, on carbs and especially bread. And natural leavening has a way of helping your body to realize that it's getting what it needs. Um, our, we, we've noticed a very big change with that. My wife is an expert in natural leavening, and, and uh, so many people, when they taste it, they want to learn how to do this, and they realize really how easy it, it, it is, relatively speaking, to to incorporate that into your your baking and your uh, routine. And she's, she's an expert at it. And it, it made all the difference for our family just to make that a routine and always have that start there. And, and whether we're making pancakes or bread or pizza or, or whatever, it's part of our, our routine. And she's, she's an expert at making that work. I like that you brought up Wheat Belly. What were your thoughts on it? Because... I did like how Wheat Belly exposed the issues of all of the hybridization that's gone on in wheat, but I also had some issues with it that in Wheat Belly, the author was against any type of grain, including the heirloom. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll be glad to comment on, on the book. I, you know, I read it, and the author certainly uh, did his research and dotted his I's and crossed his T's and and we know that there's been years of hybridization going on with with wheat, um, uh, with a lot of varieties of wheat. 
and it very well could be um, one of the major factors involved in wheat sensitivities uh, in people today. Um, I guess my main concern with the book. Um, so anyway, I you know I I agree with the author's research um, and certainly don't have anything to um, debate his research with, you know. So I think the main thing is um, grains are a a food group, uh, you know created and given to us by God to eat and of course you know thousands of years of of man putting you know his two cents worth into uh, improving so to speak I say that in quotation marks and having to change um, the structure of things because of our dwindling environment has we can certainly attest to, yeah, these things would probably um, not be the greatest thing in the world. But the issue I have is, you know, I garden organically, and I get my organic uh, seed catalog, and every year it is showcasing on the cover these new varieties of lettuce and carrots and broccoli. So most of the foods that we eat today are hybridized. So, you know, it's it's not just wheat being the only um, food demon out there. We have to understand that uh, most of the foods that we eat these days have been hybridized to one degree or another. And, you know, people need to distinguish, too, between hybridization and genetically modifying um, the DNA in seeds. I I think there's a a fine line there that too many people cross over, um, and they don't quite understand the difference in hybridization compared to genetically modifying um, a seed. That is a great point to bring up. There is certainly a lot of confusion. A lot of people hear hybridization and they automatically say GMO, which it's not the same. Hybridization, it's been done pretty much since the beginning of time. But, I mean, hybridization, it's essentially like a cross-pollinization, if I understand correctly, just combining the seeds. It's not going into a laboratory and taking some chemicals to alter the DNA, which is what genetic modification does. Correct, correct. And, you know, hybridization can be done in nature by the bees and the bugs and the birds, or it can be done in the lab as well, but it is cross-pollinization. It's not gene splitting. Right, Mm -hmm. so that's a good way to differentiate it is that it's not, you know, going in and splitting the genes, altering the DNA in the lab. And you're right, there is that in a lot of vegetables I know, potatoes, tomatoes, carrots, even lettuce. And it's been an attempt of mine more recently, although I mean, I'm not 100% going at it, but I do try to buy more heirloom grains because they have those available at the farmer's markets. You can get those. So certainly if you are wanting to eat exactly like you know we did in the beginning, there are ways that you can go more in that. 
Do you think wheat has been hybridized more than some of these others, such as potatoes or carrots? Um, that I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, Jay, do, do you have any information on how highly hybridized uh, some of these different um, grains and vegetables are? Well, from my understanding, there are no – they do not allow any genetically modified grains on the market in the U.S., um, but it, we are at great risk of the genetic modification that's going on out there. Um, it's been happening much more heavily in other countries, and not on grains from a genetic modification standpoint, but from a but on you know like you mentioned potatoes and, and uh, corn especially. And we do obviously allow genetically modified corn here in the U.S. Um, but that's a great risk to our country and to our, the world, I should say, uh, that we would. Uh, risk our food supply by allowing genetically modified grains and, and to our health, we're saying. But as far as hybridization goes, um, I've talked with a lot of wheat breeders um, in in our task uh, crossing. Um, you know, we work with the University of North Dakota and uh, Utah State University, a few people there that we've met with that have talked about their past history, and as I just listened, I, I think there has been a lot of breeding going on in wheat, at least since the 60s. I don't know how that compares with other types of vegetables or plants, but certainly wheat has had a lot of focus. Um, it's one of the staples of the world's food, and uh, they wanted to make it yield better, have a lower stock, uh, make it uh, easier to make bread out of, and, and so there's a lot of focus from a breeding standpoint going on that. And in really about the mid-70s is when our major food uh, wheat supply changed to be more along the lines of what it is today. I grew up on a farm, and I remember seeing our wheat change, and the type of wheat that we grew was different. And, and uh, it became shorter, and it became higher yielding, and, you know, it's a great thing for the farmers, but it's not sustainable as a, a long-term solution, and Monsanto is, you know, at the helm with that, and I think that if we can find a way to help people realize that these grains, you know, the einkorn does not yield as well as other types of wheat. And so, you know, for those who care about it, you're going to need to pay a little bit more because of that so that farmers can economically afford to grow it. But um, I, I think that ultimately if we find a way to support it, um, as more and more people are buying it, you know, we'll be able to hire more and more farmers to grow it. And that increases supply and allows us to make prices hopefully more affordable over time and and really allows, um, you know, Peggy's business to grow and her to still provide it better prices. Those types of changes over the long term, over the decades, is what allows us to experience uh, major changes in our food supply that now become available to more uh, people that can't afford it today. Um, and that's the process that we need to go through so that we can allow that. Uh, it's a big concern of mine is, is getting einkorn into the hands of more and more people. As we say on our website, we're trying to this ancient grain to our modern diet. And that's going to take the efforts of a lot of people. And we're doing studying and hiring um, universities to study and conduct on the farmer's side of it, there are a lot of different concerns that we're dealing with, and we're, we're trying to work through those to make it more available. It relates to um, the, the yield of it as well as the processing of it, which are both two very important concerns that end up 
affecting their bottom line and their ability to scale. And we only work with organic farmers who, we we grow something organically, you're producing a different type of a crop than if you produce it commercially. Now, I'm not talking about, the the USDA certified uh, certification process allows for some types of chemicals, whether it be uh, fertilizers or uh, herbicides that, um, you know, maybe aren't going to be the best solution. They're better than maybe some of the other alternatives, but if you talk to the farmers, you know, they say, start to say there's a fine line here between whether it's really organic or not. But if you're, as a farmer, really learning how to organically farm and make your soil grow, you realize that's what you're doing. You're growing soil, and you're learning how to build your soil. And if you're really focused on that, you're going to produce uh, very nutritious food. So by supporting Einkorn, we're also supporting that organic process and helping these farmers to learn to get to be able to do more and more of it and and to produce it at a scale that we haven't been able to do. The first time we hired an organic farm, farmer, it failed, and it was devastating for us because we spent thousands of dollars to get it to that point, and our Einkorn crop completely failed. And so we've learned the value of having good organic farmers that really know what they're doing and that have this, you know, we, we speak with the state certification boards about their practices and their history and, and really search them out because finding the right farmers that really know what they're doing is going to also help us to make this sustainable and, and able to grow. And the yield is a good thing to bring up. And that was a good point I liked about Wheat Belly, about really the whole reason for the hybridization was so the grains could grow taller and grow faster and they could have more to sell. But with that, it loses the nutrition and I see that really as the same issue with any type of crop that is hybridized is they do it for the same reason. They want it to grow bigger and grow faster so they can have more to sell. And similarly, it also loses the nutrition. So now I want to get into a little because I know that we can get the einkorn flour from To Your Health. Uh, Peggy, are you also going to be selling the grains that people can mill themselves? Yes. Just like all of our products, you can buy the sprouted and dried einkorn berries. And um, that way you'll have fresh flour every time you get ready to bake. And I'm kind of interested from each of you if you have specific grain mills that you recommend to use with einkorn. Well, I I have a Retzel uh, millwright mill. Uh, I guess the biggest disadvantage is the one that I've got uh, electric. They do make a hand grinder, so if we ever lose electricity, mine's not going to be of much good to me, but it comes with a stainless steel and a stone burr, and they're interchangeable depending on, you know, what you would like to grind, and it's very, very low to no heat involved, which is great. Um, and it just does a super job, and I've had mine probably 10 years. If there's electricity around in 100 years, I'll still be, well, I won't, but my little rental will still be going because it, it uh, comes with um, a heavy-duty motor, and it, it has, a, I believe, um, a 10- or 20-year warranty with it, so you can't can't beat a retzel but i know that there are several others uh on the market that are very good and maybe jade could talk about those 
we use the all grain mill. It's a stone mill, and it has a five-gallon bucket attached to it. Like I said, we use a lot of wheat in our home, and so uh, you can put you know the equivalent of a gallon can. We have a gallon can extension on top of that of the whole grains in it, and then just let let it mill, you know, for quite a long time to fill that bucket up, and that uh, it milled at a low temperature as well, and uh, very very high quality system. I don't know if he has a 10-year warranty, I believe, on it. But the Algerine has been a great meal. I think there are a number of really good ones out there, but this one's been nice for us because of the volume that we uh, need to meal at a time. Nice. And in addition to being able to order the To Your Health einkorn flour on the internet, will we start seeing these in some of the stores where To Your Health is sold? Um, well, we certainly hope so. We'll definitely be able to sell to some of our smaller wholesale accounts. Um, I'll probably have to work with uh, Jade on the availability uh, if we were going to make it uh, available to, you know, Whole Foods Market and Earth Fair and some of the larger chains that we sell to. All right. Well, and we're going to go to our desserts in a second. But before we go, let the listeners know the website where they can find your health to order the einkorn and some other flowers. Okay, it's www.toyourhealthsproutedflower.com. And Jade, where can they find your website? Einkorn.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's great to have you here, and certainly makes me more inspired now to want to go and bake some stuff with Einkorn myself. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. Today, from 3 to 6, the Whole Foods Market in Venice is celebrating the 50th anniversary of Consorzio del Prosciutto di Parma. They'll be serving samples of their prosciutto and some other food at the store's wine bar. You'll also have the chance to buy prosciutto di Parma at a discount. Tomorrow, the Culture Club 101 is holding a class in buying in-season fruits and vegetables starting at 11 a.m. You'll learn how to buy directly from farms and how to identify quality produce. To register for the class, visit their website at cultureclub101.com. And finally, next Saturday will be the March Against Monsanto. Marches will be going on in six continents, 36 countries, 47 U.S. states, and a total of 250 cities worldwide. The events are all coordinated to occur at 11 a.m. Pacific time. To find out what march is closest to you, visit the website march-against-monsanto.com. For a more detailed list of events, check out the Weston A. Price Pasadena community calendar at westonaprice.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guest next week is Liz Wolf of the blog Cave Girl Eats and the podcast Balance Bites. For more information on my guests, visit my website at appropriateomnivore.com. Okay, well, I will.